Well, take your Bibles and open to Acts chapter 2. We're going to take a break from our study in Ephesians on this resurrection day, this Sunday of Easter, and direct our attention specifically to Christ's resurrection and to its relationship to his gospel, his good news. And as we do that, we're going to isolate our attention to three verses in the book of Acts. Acts chapter 2, verses 22 to 24. This is at the apex, or in the middle, of the first Christian sermon ever preached. It's the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost in the first gathering, which was both evangelistic and equipping. It was instructive and it was also rattling and jarring to those first hearers of the Christian message. Let me read verses 22 to 24 for you. Acts chapter 2. Peter says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. From India has generated a parable that's been told for generations. Perhaps you've heard it. The most common version, in the West at least, comes from Lillian Quigley's children's book about six blind men who visit the Raja, the, the local village leader's palace, and encounter an elephant for the first time. Six blind men, they all are introduced, first time ever, to an elephant. The first blind man put his hand out and touched the side of the elephant. How smooth, he said. An elephant is like a wall. The second blind man put out his hand, touched the trunk of the elephant. And he proclaimed how round an elephant is actually like a snake. The third blind man put his hand out and touched the tusk of the elephant. How sharp, he proclaimed, an elephant is like a spear. The fourth blind man put his hand out, touched the leg of the elephant, and he said, how tall, an elephant is like a tree. The fifth blind man reached out his hand, touched the ear of the elephant, and said, you're all wrong, how wide, an elephant is like a fan. And then the sixth blind man put his hand out, and grabbed hold of the tail of the elephant and said, How thin! An elephant is like a rope. Argument ensued. They began going back and forth as to who was right in describing what an elephant was really like. The Raja, the local village leader, was awakened by the commotion, called out from his balcony, The elephant is a big animal, he said. Each man has touched only one part. You must put all the parts together to find out what the elephant is really like. 
It's a silly story. It's a fun story. It's an insightful story. And obviously, the point is simple. If you try to determine the whole of something only by a part, you're not going to get the whole description. You'll miss the meaning. You know, this is so true in how we look at Jesus of Nazareth, how we understand the gospel. It's so easy for people to just take parts of Jesus' experience on earth, parts of his death, parts of his resurrection, parts of his life. And if you isolate parts from the whole, it's really easy to be confused. Pretty easy, it's pretty common actually, for people to grasp one part of the narrative of Jesus and tragically misunderstand him. Some, for example, look only at his life, his miracles, his teaching. They come to Lake thinking that Jesus was merely a great moral instructor, a great example to follow. Others completely concentrate on his death, and they conclude that he was a sad martyr for a lost cause. Still others isolate what they call his mystical resurrection. They maintain that Jesus rises, Jesus is rising from the dead was either a mass hallucination, they actually proposed that, everyone hallucinated at the same time and thought they saw him when they didn't, or it didn't really happen and it was only a metaphor for what new life really means if you believe in Jesus. Each of these errors is caused by looking at one part of Jesus without looking at the whole, isolating it from the rest of his narrative. The whole of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection are essential to understand the good news of the gospel, how to receive heaven and avoid hell, how to have purpose and forgiveness and meaning in life and not be a slave to the worries of this world. This is wonderfully exactly what Peter does in these three verses. He looks at the whole. In verses 22, 23, and 24, Peter gives us a quick, simple overview of Jesus' life, his death, and his resurrection, all three. And he begins with that admonition, which is the title for today, listen to these words. See it in verse 22? Listen to these words. If I could call all of us today to lean in hard, to cup your hand to your ear, to lean in and listen to Peter and the words he tells us about the whole of the narrative of Jesus. So if I can, just for the next few minutes, we're going to kind of pull up a chair and listen to Peter tell us about Jesus' life and death and resurrection. In order to do this, we're going to break it down into what Peter tells us. It's three divine pronouncements to believe about Jesus. Three divine pronouncements to believe about Jesus. These are all divine pronouncements. I'll come back to that in a minute. They're not Peter's assessments. They're actually God's assessment of the Lord Jesus Christ. The first is in verse 22, the divine evidences of Jesus' life. Let's look at his life with Peter very briefly. The divine evidences or attestations is the word he uses of Jesus' life. Men of Israel. Now, he says men of Israel because there were a large gathering of Jews there on the southern uh, steps of the Temple Mount who had assembled for the celebration of the day of Pentecost, which happened 50 days. That's what Pentecost means. 50 days after 
the, the Passover, this was the second of three major celebrations of the Jewish holiday. So a month or so, almost two months after the uh, Passover, they would come back for this celebration as well. Men of Israel, listen to these words. I have something of eternal importance to tell you, he says. Jesus the Nazarene. It's very important that he calls him the Nazarene. This is not just any Jesus, Jesus. This is not uh, anyone's son or anyone's cousin or anyone's brother. This is the one from Nazareth who all of you know about. He isolates our attention to his humanity as well as his deity. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God. That's the important phrase. God is the one who attested to Jesus. How did God prove to us who Jesus was during his life? He tells us, with miracles, with wonders, and signs, here it is again, which God, not only attested, but God performed through him in your midst. And then he points to their experience, as you also know. As I said, the day of Pentecost, which literally means 50th, refers to the second celebration. It was called the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of the Harvest. People were assembled in Jerusalem, a massive crowd, and that's when this first Christian sermon is preached to this mass of people who've assembled. Verses 22 to 24 are the climax, the center to Peter's sermon. Actually, everything before it, back in verse 14, builds to this, and everything after it runs from this and and gives us, runs through this, rather, and gives us explanation of it. Notice this. Just look at the structure of this, 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 these three, three verses. Verse 22 is about God attesting to Jesus' life. Attested to you by God. See that? Look at verse 23. It's about God's predetermined planning and foreknowledge of Jesus' death. He says in verse 23, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of who? Of God. And then in verse 24, it's about God raising Jesus from the dead. But God raised him up. God is the centerpiece. God is the initiator. God is the action and the actor of all these three dimensions of Jesus' life in all three verses. These are divine pronouncements then about Jesus. Now, the first thing Peter does is he points to Jesus' life. And if you read the Gospels, the majority of the Gospels are about the life of the Lord Jesus Christ from Nazareth. His signs, his wonders were uncontested in his day, openly witnessed. Remember, his enemies didn't say that he didn't do these things. His enemies said he did them by the power of the devil. No one in Jesus' day denied these things that were supernaturally attested to his life. And if you begin from the very beginning of Jesus' life all the way to the end, you see signs and wonders and miracles, the miraculous circumstances of his conception and birth that we celebrate at Christmas, watching him turn water into wine. I remember someone telling me who was a chemist, that's a big deal because he turned an inert liquid, water, into carbon bonds which is wine, which which indicates life. It was a big deal that he went from inert to life. He turned the water into wine. That's how much power he had. He controlled nature. He directed fish in the nets. He calmed storms. 
He walked on the surface of water. He created enough food from, from just one meal to feed upwards of 12,000 people multiple times. He healed the sick, cured leprosy, their most threatening disease. He corrected congenital conditions. People who had a withered hand, a deformed hand from birth, he corrected on the spot. He gave sight to the blind, hearing to the deaf. He taught with unparalleled authority. He showed compassion on the needy and courage to correct the proud. These were the miracles and the wonders and the signs of his life. Can you flip over just for a second, hold your finger there and look at Peter's sermon to the Gentiles, his teaching of the Gentiles in Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10, let's pick it up in verse 34. This was after Peter learned that the dietary laws were, were done, meeting with Cornelius, and that God was no longer expecting the ritualistic uh, applications of the law to be held by Christians, and he brought a sheet down like a PowerPoint for, for Peter, and he was able to see that uh, rice, kill, and eat. You can, you can eat the unclean animals. Every time I have a bacon, lettuce, and tomato sandwich, I praise God for Acts chapter 10. Opening his mouth, verse 34, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The gospel is open to all. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. And then here it is. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea. Starting from Galilee, up north, 100 miles north, after the baptism which John proclaimed, you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power, and how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. The same thing he just told uh, the, the people of the day of Pentecost. God performed these signs, miracles, and wonders through him. I love how he keeps going. Verse 39. We are witnesses of all the things he did both in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he would become visible not to all the people but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand. That is to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Friends, if you hear nothing else today, hear that. The Lord Jesus, the resurrected Lord Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. Of him the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. So looking at the life and the death and the resurrection of, of Jesus was Peter's protocol, was his, his message. Now, with, without going into long detail about this, the miracles, those, it's actually the word uh, dynamis in the Greek. It's 
power from which we get dynamite, the powers he had, mighty works that show the operation of God's power, kingly rule through the Lord Jesus, the Messiah. Also wonders, Tarata, because of the amazement that these miracles caused in peoples. They were wonderful. No one had seen anything like this done by anyone before. And then signs, this points to the, the, the... points to the fact that these miracles and wonders that he did were aimed at signifying who he is, where he came from, who his father is, and the significance of his coming. Notice that Peter puts the proof of these on the people's listening. Such things God did through him among the very people who were listening to him. You, you, most of you heard this man teach. You saw some of his miracles. There was no debate about whether these miraculous things happened. The debate was what they meant. And Peter's explaining that they were signals to look through Christ to God as the author and the perfecter and the demonstrator of these wonders. No one in Peter's hearing could escape the compelling evidence of Jesus' life. And I would encourage you, if you have questions or curiosities about Jesus, read Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, or any of them, and begin saying, what is the compelling evidence of this man's life, which was uncontested in his day, by the way. It wasn't until, you know, um, 19th century German liberalism when people began to doubt that these things actually happened. What do you believe about Jesus' life? That's where Peter starts. He was attested to you, to them, to us, by God, by these amazing things that he did and said and was, his life. But if he only did that, there would be no forgiveness of sins, no payment for sins, no sacrifice for sins. So his life was like that elephant, not the whole story. Which brings us, secondly, to the divine significances of his death. The divine significances of Jesus' death. Verse 23. This man, the Greek is this one. This man I've just described who is attested to you by God with signs and miracles and wonders. This man, and then he shifts from the life to the death. Delivered over by... The predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. You nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. In this verse, we, verse we find a, a big theological term called agency. Who was the agent? Where was the agency of Jesus' death? And you've got to be careful when you answer that. So let me ask you a a series of questions. Who was responsible for the death of Jesus? Was it um, his disciples who abandoned him? Was it the Jews who conspired against him? Was it the chief priests and the scribes who plotted a murderous death? Was it the Romans who nailed him to the tree? Was it your sin? Was it mine? Or was it God the Father who predetermined for this to happen? And if you read your Bibles, you will answer letter, whatever it is, all the above. (laughs) The confluence of divine 
sovereignty and human responsibility I don't think is anywhere more held in tension and more beautifully explained than here in the death of Jesus Christ. Look at that first agency, delivered over by the predetermined plan. That delivered over means that God himself is the one who had Jesus arrested and tried and scourged and beaten and executed. He was delivered over by God, and this wasn't something that God decided that weekend. This wasn't a Friday morning deal that he made. Predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. God knew about this before Jesus was ever born. And he didn't know that it would happen alone. He predetermined that it would happen. The book of Leviticus tells us that without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And Hebrews chapter 9 tells us that people had to bring sacrifices year after year after year to atone for their sin, but that Jesus, in his one death and sacrifice, satisfies the demands of God for absolute covering and punishment for the sins of anyone who would believe. He died as a substitute, predetermined. His cousin, John the Baptist, when he saw him coming for baptism, said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. There's so much in there. The Lamb of God is a reference to the Levitical uh, system, Leviticus 16, the, the Day of Atonement in which sin was covered for And he says, that's the ultimate lamb of God, the once for all sacrifice for sins. Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The only way to be forgiven is to believe that his death would substitute for yours and mine. There's a looming question, though, (laughs) for the Jews who are listening. And you can almost hear the theological calculus going on in their minds. If Jesus was attested by God in his life and miracles and signs and wonders, if he was ratified and accredited by God, then why was he rejected and crucified? Why didn't people believe and and follow and anoint him as king and follow up with what they did on the Palm Sunday before his crucifixion and say, hail King of the Jews and submit to him and inaugurate his kingdom. Why didn't they? Peter tells us, because that wasn't God's plan. Because in his death would be offered forgiveness. The accent is on God's sovereignty in everything that happened. He was handed over by God's deliberate plan, by his foreordained knowledge. The plan had a particular reference to the suffering of the Messiah. Peter doesn't explain, by the way, how Jesus' death actually achieves our salvation. That happens in the rest of the New Testament. But we know in Acts chapter 8 from another evangelist, Philip, he actually used Isaiah 53 to show that Jesus' death was predetermined. That long ago in Isaiah's day, he prophesied that the Messiah would suffer and bleed and be mistreated and be beaten and die for the sins of anyone who would believe in him. The focus 
shifts, though, in the last part of this verse. Notice he was nailed to the cross by godless men. Oh, it's God's predetermined plan, but his predetermined plan allowed men acting out in their hateful vengeance against God and killing his son. He warns not to relieve them or us of the human responsibility, but he tells us that even the murder of Jesus by godless men was still according to God's plan. Now, we have to be careful here, and I think it's worth talking about just so briefly. Many have used this exact verse as a reason to generate awful hatred toward Jews. David Peterson is correct when he notes this. He went on to warn his hearers, Peter did, about the danger of rejecting the evidence about Jesus presented to them in chapter 13. But he did not accuse them of complicity in his betrayal than this. Any attempt to blame subsequent generations of Jews for the death of Jesus is unwarranted and unjust, end quote. I think he's right. Because it wasn't, if you had been there, you would have done the same thing. It was our sin that held him there. Jesus himself said in Luke chapter 22, verse 22, the son of man is going as it has been determined to Jerusalem, but woe to that man who is betrayed, by whom he is betrayed. He's going as it has been determined. Jesus knew when he was walking up to Jerusalem, I'm going up to suffer, I'm going up to be tried unjustly, I'm going up to die, and this is predetermined, I know about it, I'm walking headlong into it. The divine evidences of Jesus' life blossom in the divine significances of Jesus' death. God crushed his son so that you and I would not have to be crushed in judgment and spend eternity in hell. That sounds like a good plan, but it also sounds like it ends in a really bad defeat. It sounds like it ends in an awful martyrdom. But there's more. And that's to remember why we're here today and to remember the divine effects of Jesus' resurrection. The divine effects of Jesus' resurrection. Remember, the agency in all these three verses is God primary. Look at the agency in the first part of verse 24. But God raised him up. God raised him up. Brought him back from the dead. This is the climax. Men may have had a hand in killing Jesus, but God brought him back to life. Now, let me say it as clearly as I, as I can. There are several theories that began even during though that weekend of conspiracy, the swoon theory that Jesus wasn't really dead. He just... He just passed out from all the pain of the cross and in the cool of those, those evenings in the garden and in the garden tomb and in the, uh, the, the cave in which he was buried, that brought him back to his senses and he, he walked out. So he just swooned, he didn't die. Let me assure you that when that Roman put that spear in Jesus' side, he was a professional killer. He knew 
Jesus was dead. Some people also think, as I said a minute ago, that his resurrection was a, was a mass hallucination. A mass hallucination. That, that's just far-fetched. Uh, this many people, 500 plus, John, uh, Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, can't have the same kind of hallucination all over Israel. Others, in the day of Jesus, concocted this story. This is what the soldiers were told to tell, to propagate from the Jewish leadership. Tell them that somebody, the disciples, came and stole Jesus' body. He didn't really rise from the dead. We just can't find his body. Well, that doesn't account for Jesus actually showing up to the people that he did. God raised him up again. Not a resuscitation, an eternal resurrection. And the way Peter describes this is as wonderful as it is amazing. You know why? I wish that you could see this in the original language, the Greek, because it's a strange and odd metaphor. He mixes a metaphor here between birth and death. Putting an end to the agony of death. That word agony, odin, <laughs> means birth pangs, labor. Listen to this. Peter is saying, God put an end to death. The birth pangs, the labor of death by Jesus' resurrection. The agony of death became its birth pangs. Death is said to have been in labor like a mother with a child, unable to hold back the delivery of Jesus from the tomb. It's just wonderful. Jesus' resurrection was his divine, decisive accreditation by God that Jesus was indeed Savior and Lord. Resurrection is the ultimate answer to the ultimate question. It's the ultimate, ultimate solution to the ultimate problem, and that's death. Listen to the words of the writer to the Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. He says, since children, that's you and me, people, share in flesh and blood, he himself, Jesus himself, likewise also became flesh and blood, partook of the same. That through death, his death, Jesus might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is the devil. What power did the devil have in death? We find out. And might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. The devil holds power over us not because he can kill. Luke chapter 12 tells us that God has the power of life and death. The devil has power over us with death because he makes us afraid of it. He wills fear in our life. Everyone is naturally and rightfully afraid of death because death involves our fear of judgment. Jesus came to free us from that fear. Listen, I, I'm, I have some fears about how I might die. But I am so grateful that when my theology is rightly aligned, the fear of being dead is a joy. It's resolved in the, the reality of going to heaven. 
And if you believe in the good news of Christ, you can have that same hope and assurance. So Peter preaches this to Jews who had just less than two months earlier watched Jesus become executed, who had no doubt some of those Jews had been there saying, crucify him, crucify him. What's their response going to be? Look down at verse 37. Now, when they heard this, the power of his sermon, including these three verses, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brethren, what shall we do? And I love Peter's response. Repent! It's a word that means turn from your ways and turn to God. Repent! And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He's not saying that baptism forgives your sins. He's saying that baptism, that association with Christ is association with the one who will forgive your sins and that's Jesus. Repent. Three parts of the gospel. Believing the facts of Jesus' life, understanding the theology of what they meant, and repenting, responding by giving your life to Christ. Listen to how the resurrection of Jesus is wrapped into Paul's great and famous admonition to become a Christian. Romans 9, excuse me, 10 verse 9 says, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord, your master, and believe in your heart, what? That God raised him from the dead. Here's the assurance. You will be saved. Saved from God's wrath. Saved from eternity and hell. Saved from your own lostness and aimless life. For with the heart, a person believes, resulting in righteousness. With the mouth, he confesses, resulting in salvation. The scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. What a promise. For there's no distinction between Jew or Gentile, Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all, all who call on him. And then this, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. Have you called on the name of the Lord? Do you, under, do you understand what trouble you are in without God's salvation, without God's initiation, without God's grace and mercy and forgiveness? You can be saved from all the threat that God is to an unbeliever by believing. This is the most amazing reality. God doesn't say take care of yourself. He says believe in the fact that I've taken care of your sin through the death of my son. And I proved it by raising him from the grave. That gives us hope. That gives us confidence. Gives us a way to pull into the harbor of God and be freed from any threat that this life would ever throw at us. And the ultimate threat that death would throw at us. So if you're a believer, what a day. Oh, happy day. And if you're not, what a great day for you to be here and hear Peter. In just a minute, I'm going to close and one of our elders, Steve Schulte, is going to be over at our prayer room and 
if, you, uh, if you'd like to talk about what it means to have your sins forgiven, have your guilt alleviated, purpose in life, understanding and confidence in death, please, I beg you, let me beg you not to leave without talking to someone about your soul.